scriptures and open them to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 today. No way. Yahweh. That's it. Right. I was thinking about taking the whole Old Testament, but no, I just took these four chapters. I'm indebted to Nancy Guthrie for the outline of my sermon today. Look at chapter 9, starting in, I'm sorry, chapter 6, starting in verse 9. 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence and because of them. I'm surely going to destroy them both and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters to the earth and destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Today we're going to be looking at these four chapters, the third section that Moses was inspired to write, the third generations of, the third, the account of. You see that in verse 9 of chapter 6. This is the account of Noah. And that goes clear through to chapter 9. This is the third section of the book of Genesis, third of ten. And this distinct section recounts the judgment of God through the flood. And now the flood is probably one of the most recognizable features in all of Scripture. If you ask someone on the street to tell you about what they know about Scripture, they'd probably come up with one of four answers. Maybe more, but probably one of four. They might say, well, I know about Christmas. And by that they mean the birth of Jesus. Or they might say, you know what, I know we celebrate Easter. And by that, they might be saying, I know about the death of Jesus. And someone might say, I know about the parting of the Red Sea. That's kind of a big thing. They probably know that from the movie, The Ten Commandments. 
And they probably might mention the flood. I know about the flood. This is one of those mountain peaks of Scripture. A seminal event in redemptive history. But as the heading of the Scripture implies, this is not so much about the flood, although it is about the flood, as it is about Noah. These four chapters is the account of Noah. As Kent Hughes has written, the message of these chapters is not the flood, though it is one of the most gripping accounts in Scripture. Neither is the message of one of judgment, though it describes an awful judgment. Rather, it is a story that focuses on Noah. The flood narrative is the key to understanding ourselves today because we see how a soul is saved from destruction and is instructed in the doctrine of salvation. It is the kind of story, it is the story of a kind of man who is saved out of a lost world. It is the story of a sinner saved by grace. The story, that's what these four chapters are about. A sinner saved by grace. Noah was a sinner that was saved by grace. In verse 9, we're told that Noah stood alone in a wicked generation. Like many of us have done through history, like many of the Christians through history have done, they stood alone, apart. Like people like Athanasius come to mind and Augustine. Certainly the men of the Reformation that we're just celebrating the 500th anniversary of, most of those people had to stand alone, didn't they? People like John Wycliffe and John Huss and William Tyndale and Ulrich Zwingli and Thomas Cranmer and John Knox and John Calvin. Certainly probably one of the best examples of standing alone is Martin Luther himself. You know the story. He was brought before the council with King in, in his presence and he was told to recant, to renounce of this crazy thing that he was teaching and preaching of salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. And maybe you do, maybe you don't know what he said. He actually paused and he said this, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. That was a dangerous stance he was taking upon excommunication and death. And as believers, sometimes we feel that singularity in our life when we have to stand alone, stand against the culture. I was encouraged uh, a couple weeks ago by my brother Mark who told me it takes a living fish to swim against the current. It takes a living fish to swim against the current. You know you're spiritually alive when you're called to swim against the current. It's easy to look dead and flow with the current. And Noah was a lone fish swimming against the cultural current of corruption, of violence, of wickedness, as it says in verse 9. He was a righteous man, blameless among his people of his time, and he walked with God. It's tempting to read this 
read that, and it's tempting to go, oh, God kind of scanned the earth and found somebody that was living for him. There he is. I finally found him. The one guy. In other words, Noah was given grace because of what he was doing. That's the conclusion we could draw from Abraham's life as well, right? When we get to that, it says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Oh, well, he, did, he earned this righteousness. He was saved because he was good. We have to remember that Noah walked with God because God pursued him. Noah was blameless and righteous for the same reason we are. Many people say, well, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? The same way they got saved in the New Testament. By grace of God, a sinner, Noah was a sinner, just like you and I, who was saved by the grace of God. And I think you see that in the beginning and the end of his life. If we look back at chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, we see there that here we have the lineage starting with Adam. And it says there in verse 1, when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. In his own image. Notice the stress there. And he named him Seth. Here we read that Adam was made in God's image, the perfect image. And then we have that first section that talks about the fall of man. And then the text, this text is drawing our attention between the difference between when God made Adam and when Adam had Seth and the rest of his generation. He was now, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, born in the image of Adam, as we all are, with that sinful nature, born of sin into sin. Now the image of God is warped and tainted by sin. God's image was perfect in Adam, and Adam sinned, and all the offspring from Adam, and that's what this is drawing your attention to, are born with that stain of sin, that original sin within us, that sin nature that I talked about earlier that we're bent towards, that sinful likeness now from Adam to Seth to Seth to Enosh, ten generations all the way to Noah. We are to see that Noah was in the image of Adam. Noah was born a sinner just as you and I are. So you see that from the beginning, but you also see it at the end, don't you? Turn with me to chapter 9, verses 18. Here we're skipping all the way to the end of the, of the count of Noah. When he comes out of the ark, it says, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three people, three sons of Noah, and from them came all who were scattered over the earth. Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. 
When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Noah got drunk. Noah sinned at the end of his life. That sinful nature is displayed in him, even after all that God has done for him. Sound familiar? Some commentators try to cover this up. It's interesting. So very interesting. Some commentators try to cover this up by saying that Noah was naive about the effects of wine. And that he got drunk by accident. I think that this is placed in Scripture to show us that Adam, uh, that Noah was a sinner, just like you and me. There's no need to do that covering up if you come to the text knowing that from Adam on we all have a sinful nature and that we are saved by grace alone. Indeed, that's what chapter 6 Verse 8 is trying to tell us, isn't it? Even before the account, the, the sentence right before the account of Noah, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found favor. Older versions of this scripture say this, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And grace is never earned. Grace is always a gift by the very definition. It wasn't Noah who earned God's grace. It was God who gifted Noah with salvation. It was God who pursued Noah and gave him the gift of grace. Harry Ironside, the 20th century pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, told of a new convert who gave his testimony during a church service. With joy, the man related how he had been delivered from a life of sin. He gave the Lord all glory, making it clear that he had done nothing to earn his salvation. The person leading the service didn't fully appreciate that truth, that salvation is by grace alone. So he responded, you seem to indicate that God did everything when he saved you. Didn't you do your part before God did his? And this is what the new Christian said. He said, oh yes, I did. For more than 30 years, I ran away from God as fast as my sins could carry me. That was my part. But God took after me and ran me down. That was God's part. That's how salvation comes to each and every one of us. God runs us down. We get to a point where he turns on the light in our hearts and our minds and we understand the gospel. It makes sense that somebody would die for me, that my sin was placed on him. That makes sense. There's a time in your life when that clicks. And that's when God runs you down. So just as God has run after each one of us and granted us the grace of salvation, that's exactly what he did to Noah. He sang just as we do that great hymn, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath bestowed, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. When we sing that, we should realize and we should say, why me? 
Have you ever said that in your salvation? Have you ever stopped and gone, Lord, why me? I'm, I don't deserve this. Noah was a sinner who was saved by grace just as we are. And that gave him the desire to, as Micah 6, 8 says, act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with his God. God's grace alone gave him the desire to obey God when he asked him to build an ark. You see, without the presence of God in his life, in his life, he would have had no desire to obey. He would have much rather have gone with the flow of culture instead of standing alone. And you and I, honestly, isn't it true? We have no desire, no deep desire to stand in those waters coming this way and start walking that way. No desire to swim against the current, to obey God. And here's the key, to obey God for God's sake, not for our sake. Oh, sure, we'll obey God's rules as long as it benefits us. Sure, yeah. As long as it makes us feel good or as long as it makes us look good. If it makes us look good, yeah, I'm with you. Or as long as it feeds my self-image, as long as people see me as good and praise me because I'm good. Sure, we'll obey, but the minute we get pushed back, the minute the obedience requires real sacrifice, something that we hold dear, we pause. The minute it challenges one of our idols, we get angry. The minute it asks us to put our reputation on the line, we step back. The minute it asks us to swim against the current, many times that's when we feign death and go with the current, isn't it? But not Noah. We read in verses 11 through 14 that he was told by God to build an ark because a flood was coming, and he built that ark for over 100 years. He built that ark for over 100 years. Imagine the mocking, imagine the ridicule that he went through standing alone for God. I just uh, watched with my kids uh, on Friday night, Evan Almighty. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but it's a modern riff on the Noah story where God asks a modern-day congressman, a newly elected congressman, to build another ark because another flood is coming. And his wife and his children and his neighbors and the whole Congress think he's crazy for building this ark. There's, a, there's even a drought going on in this town, which gives evidence to the opposite. Noah obeyed because he believed God, even though he had no evidence. No evidence. The text says again and again, Noah did everything just as God commanded it. In verse 22 of chapter 6, in verse 5 of chapter 7, of verse uh, 16 of chapter 7, over and over again, he obeyed God. That takes a regenerate heart to obey God 
without any evidence and with evidence to the contrary. That's exactly what the people of God are commended for in Hebrews 11, isn't it? That, that chapter we have, that precious chapter in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, that's what all the people in that chapter are commended for. By having faith. And it even starts with a definition of faith. You know it. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and absolutely positive of what? What we do not see. And it goes on to talk about Adam and Abraham and Noah that we just read about as a body of believers. Noah's in the hall because when warned about things not yet seen, he built an ark. He obeyed God. Because he believed that God was going to judge the world. And that brings us to our second point. Noah is a sinner protected by God's grace. Though the flood, through the flood, God was going to judge the world. He was going to treat man exactly how their sins deserve. Let me say that again. He was going to treat the world exactly how their sins deserve. Look at verse 13 in chapter 7 with me. I'm sorry, look at uh, verse 11 and 12 in chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Skip down to verse 17 and it gives us a description of the flood. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out and men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. This must have been a horrible scene. I've said this again and again. Never read the Bible in a vacuum. I mean, just sit back after you read that and think of the scene that was going on there. That's what I did in my study this week as I thought about the rising waters and the people finally kind of coming to it and going, oh my goodness, and banging on the outside of the ark after it was closed. I thought of people, once the water got to a certain height, people swimming next to the ark. I'm sure there was a great throng of swimmers next to the ark trying to hold on, trying to get finger holds so they can save themselves. Eventually, exhausted, one by one, the water fills their lungs. 
And then I thought, what, what must have it looked like with all those bloated, bobbing bodies all over? It's horrific. If that doesn't create a lump in your throat, I don't know what will. It's like that scene in, the, in Titanic it reminded me of when they go back after the ship had gone down. They go back with the life rafts. Remember that? And they go back into this field of dead, bobbing bodies. That is a picture of what sin deserves. Utter and absolute destruction. Death. But the very last line informs us that Noah was left and those with him in the ark. In the ark. ark the ark protected Noah in the, from the floodwaters. The ark protected Noah from death. The ark protected Noah from divine judgment. A.W. Pink writes, the ark was a safe a place of safety. It, provided, it was provided by God when death threatened all. It was the only place of deliverance from the wrath to come. And as such, it speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ? It's fascinating how many times in the New Testament you read the two words together, in Christ. In Christ. Let me give you a taste. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2. I consider all I once had rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, and perhaps most famously, and we all know this one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just as Noah was protected from God's wrath and divine judgment in the ark that he was commanded to build, the only protection from God's judgment, from the wrath of God on your sins, is to hide ourselves in Christ. Because, and make no mistake about it, God does promise, does promise never to destroy the world by water. He does make that promise here. But his terrifying judgment will come on this earth again. God will judge sin once more. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Books of the Bible are devoted to it. 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter in the book of Revelation. Listen how Peter describes it in his third chapter of his second letter. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. 
Make no mistake, God will judge the sins of the world again. And according to what I read, it's going to be even worse than the flood. And if you're here and you do not know Christ, if you are not in Christ, I don't want you to misinterpret this. This is not a scare tactic. This is just true. There were many, many, many in the time of Noah who stood outside the ark and mocked and didn't believe. Who for a hundred years ignored Noah's message as we're told in Peter that he preached to the people. He just didn't sit there and bang nails. He told them the judgment of God was coming. All those people who gained false assurance from the good days in the sunshine. Don't be like the captain of the Lusitania, who when the torpedo slammed into the side, told the passengers, it's all going to be okay. Who gave them false assurance so that they stopped going to the life rafts. 1,200 out of 2,000 died that day. This is not a scare tactic. This is God gracefully extending out to you an understanding that judgment on sin will come. And it will be horrific. Revelation speaks of it in terms of a great wine press where the grapes of wrath are gathered and crushed. And it says the blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's a picture of how horrible the judgment is going to be. But God provided another ark, Jesus Christ. And all who are found in him when he comes back are saved. All who believe that they actually deserve judgment. That's the first step in the gospel, isn't it? You deserve judgment. All who believe that they cannot live up to God's standards. That's another step in the gospel, isn't it? Actually understanding that God requires perfection, and I can't do it. All who believe that Jesus lived a blameless, sinful life, sinless life, that he actually didn't sin in word, thought, and deed and earned a righteousness from God. That all who believe that Jesus hung on the cross and took the punishment for their sin on him. Who believe that, that Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God on that day. That Christ willingly climbed into the wine press and God crushed him. And three days later, victoriously rising from the dead, you see, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. In him. Christ is the ark that will protect you and me from God's wrath to come. If you believe that, 
you're saved. If you believe that, you are protected. Noah was a sinner saved by grace. He was protected by grace. And he was also preserved by grace. That's the covenant of the rainbow. And that's what that shows us. Look at verse 8 in chapter 9. After the flood recedes, Noah comes out. And God said to Noah and his sons, verse 8 of chapter 9, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. After the flood subsides, God promises never to destroy or judge sin by water ever again. Have you ever sat back and thought about that? Why God did that? First of all, I think it's an incredibly gracious act. Here is an awful thing that just happened. These people get off the ark, and every time the storm clouds gather, what are they thinking? This is it again. They're going to run to the highest mountain. Every time it starts raining hard, they're going to think God is judging them again. So he graciously puts a sign that says, I promise never to do that again by water. So the people, to be reassured, he places a bow. We call it a rain bow, but he places a bow in the sky. He places an instantly recognizable implement of war in the sky. Not strung with arrows at the ready pointing towards earth, but empty pointing towards heaven, signifying that God is no longer at war with man, saying that even though man is still sinful, he will not shoot his arrows at him. Why? A very simple reason is not because we, he'll overlook sin. He's not going to overlook sin. Because God no longer gets angry with sin? No. No, still gets angry with sin. Reason because man will no longer sin after the flood? No, we've got evidence of that right after the flood. The reason is because, as we just heard, God spent all of his arrows on his son. On the cross, God the Father expelled all his wrath for sin on Christ. And what's left is grace for us. 
Now, does that mean that as believers we're never disciplined because of sin? Of course not. Does that mean as believers that that we never face the consequences of our sin? Of course not. What this means is that we do not pay the price that sin deserves if we are found in Christ. And that is death. Once we're on or in the ark, we are protected and preserved by God from his judgment. And that's what Noah's judgment, that's what Noah's drunkenness shows us, doesn't it? Noah sinned after the flood. He was saved, but he sinned after being protected. As Nancy Guthrie points out, she writes, what seems to be a sad ending to the story is redeemed only because we remember the beginning. Noah found favor in God's eyes. She concludes, this favor had not come to Noah because of his good behavior, and he can't lose it because of his bad behavior. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that a big exhale for us? That's what being saved by grace alone through Christ alone gives us. What good news! We're not only protected by grace, we're preserved by grace. You can't lose, people, what you did not earn. You can't lose it. On August 7th, 2007, Barry Bonds hit his record-breaking home run and broke Hank Aaron's record. Most of the talk was of the new record, though, is whether it really should count because Bonds had allegedly used steroids. Many say if his name goes in the record book, it should be accompanied by that asterisk, right? That asterisk, could, of course, means that there's some doubt about the record. Mark Echo, the man who bought the ball that Bonds hit to set the record, asked baseball fans in an internet poll what he should do with the baseball. The fans voted for him to brand the baseball with an asterisk and donate it to the Hall of Fame. And that's exactly what he did. Perhaps there are some of you sitting out there today who, because of the ongoing sin in your life, feel as if you have an asterisk by your name in the book of life. You're sitting there thinking, well, I keep sinning, I keep sinning. Maybe there is an asterisk there. And he's just waiting to see how it ends. Your besetting sin causes you to think of yourself, that your salvation is somehow tainted, that you perhaps really don't belong to the Lord fully, that you doubt your salvation. Scripture talks about the book of life in which the names of each believer is recorded. And let me tell you, it is tempting to start believing that with all the sins we commit in our life, that our, each of our names has that little asterisk next to it. Tainted. Not really belonging. Wait and see. People of God. You cannot lose what you did not earn. Rest assured, there is no asterisk by your name. So great is the justification of Christ 
so perfect is his work on the cross, that just so just is God in justifying you, that in the book of life there will be no asterisk by your name. Because of Christ's atoning work on the cross for you, you truly belong to him. The grace of God saves us. The grace of God protects us. And the grace of God preserves us. Noah did not find favor in God's eyes because of his good behavior. And he couldn't lose it because of his bad. What is true of Noah is true of you and me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, use it. Change us. Enlighten us. In Jesus' name, amen.